Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. Today I'm speaking with Vincent Desiderio. Vincent is a titan of contemporary painting, and it was almost impossible to select highlights from his bio and keep it to a paragraph, but I tried my best. Vincent is a senior critic at the New York Academy of Art and has been a visiting professor at numerous universities in both the U.S. and abroad. He's the recipient of honorary doctorates from both the New York Academy of Art and the Lyme Academy. His work can be found in some of the most important public collections in the world, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim Museum, the Hirschhorn Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and many more. Numerous articles about Vincent have appeared in notable publications such as The New York Times, The New Yorker, Art Forum, Art in America, Art News, and more. For more about Vincent and his work, you can visit his website at vincent-desiderio.com. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. You can become a supporter too at patreon.com slash kengoshen. For just $2 of support, you get access to all my Patreon-exclusive live events, where you can watch me paint, ask me questions, but most importantly, you'll know your $2 go towards helping me produce free educational content that everyone can enjoy, like this show. So to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com slash kengoshen. Last little note, there's also a totally free way to support this show, and it will take you less than 10 seconds. Just take out your phone, open the podcast app you're using to listen to this episode, and rate this podcast five stars. Super easy, right? Every five-star review helps this show reach more people, so please take a moment to do it. If you're watching this on YouTube, just like and subscribe. Many thanks in advance. And now I bring you my conversation with Vincent Desiderio. Vincent, thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ken, for having me. So I want to start by maybe giving you some high praise about why I love your work, and then that's going to lead me into the first topic that I want to talk about. What I think your work does so successfully is it demonstrates, you know, um, a connection to art history, but it also doesn't demonstrate any allegiance to any particular style. I find that there's something in your work that feels so rooted in tradition, but also it blends so many different styles such that it could only have been painted today. So I'm, I'm just so envious of this accomplishment. And perhaps you could share with us maybe how, you, how has your style developed over the years uh, up until this point? Well, um... You know, when I first um, got, came to paint, I, I started painting when I was, and thinking about painting when I was very little. I was about 12. And like, you know, I'm sure everybody starts pretty young. Uh, I became obsessed with art history at the same time. And I just read all the time art history. And um, I think that um, I, I always, I, I was shocked when I actually saw a model for the first time, because it looked nothing like Michelangelo mm. or any body I had ever seen in in 
uh, it aren't. Um, so it made me start to realize that there was something very different than uh, perception uh, that uh, art was about. That representation, figural representation was about, figurative representation was about. Um, so I um, I learned over time to paint out of my head because I stopped painting the figure and I began to work abstractly. And for a, a, a number of years, uh, that's all I did. I was mm. I did not want to work from the figure at all. Uh, in fact, when I really became more of an artist, uh, you know, uh, had grown out of that childhood infatuation with Renaissance and things like that. I I was an abstract painter, and uh, it, I was that until 1984, and then I began to uh, reconsider the possibility of figuration. But to answer your question, uh, in a certain sense, uh, regarding the um, the, the uh, confluence of of uh, stylistic references. Uh, I don't I don't want to make it an officious thing. In other words, there are some artists who, who have actually demonstrated a proficiency to work in different styles and they make it part of the theme of their work. With me, it seems to all have been homogeneously uh, grouped within my consciousness. And I think it's because my thought is more the thought of a nomad and I think it's a, there's kind of nomadic sense to my uh, love of art history. So when it all filters through my consciousness and, and my subconsciousness, it emerges as a, uh, a mixture of these things, uh, an uh, ongoing dialogue between these, these uh, competing and sometimes you know, friendly uh, manners of execution. Wow, that is okay. That's fascinating because you bring up abstraction, and that is that is something that I wanted to get to as well because I I picked up some of those themes uh, in your work. But perhaps you can share with us, maybe how did that feel like when you were young, coming up, uh, looking at all these representational masters, and then deciding I'm gonna put that on hold and I'm gonna go a different path. What caused you to want to actually venture into abstraction? That's a, that's a, that is a very good question uh, because uh, my, com- my love, total love of Renaissance art when I was a little, when I was little. But actually, the thing is, the first time I ever looked at art um, was when I was around three and four, and my brother and I, my older brother and I, would pour through this book of Jansen's, uh, it's like a journey through art history. It's a, it's a Coffee table book. My mother had, and I would, you know, these pictures were burning into my mind, and they were pictures like, you know, Van Eyck's uh, uh, Last Judgment or Picasso's, you know, Old Guitarist or, uh, uh, you know, Jeremiah from the Sistine Chapel, uh, The Scream by Edvard Munch, and Mantegna's Crucifixion. These things would scare the hell out of me because I would dream about them at night as a little boy. But by the time I was 12, I started like really getting into the Renaissance and reading Frederick Hart's and transcribing in my, one of my notebooks, Frederick Hart's uh, History of uh, the Italian Renaissance uh, and absorbing this stuff. I, I loved it. And then I asked my parents if I could paint the Sistine Chapel, paint the creation of man from the Sistine Chapel or a garage. They said, no, you can't do that. 
And I said, I'll build the scaffold. I wanted him to like make this thing. They said, you're not going to do it. So they went away. And while they were away, I uh, I started painting the creation of man on the garage ceiling. And, uh, and I started doing it. They came home and they, they were pleased, actually. I was amazed. So from that time, you know, I, I really, you know, tried to understand Michelangelo as well as I could at that age and was shocked when, and I felt that he belonged to me. You know, no little kid. He belonged to me. Nobody else. I understand Michelangelo. I'm the only one that he painted for, he worked for. And then I went to the Rodin Museum. It was the first museum I'd ever been to in my life. I was 16, and my uh, cousin took me there, and I I almost died. I had this, like, attack of the anxiety of influence. I, I, I just wanted to kill Rodin. I couldn't believe that he owned Michelangelo more than I did, <laughs> that he had already gotten there, that he had done it. And I was mad, really mad. So, you know, that didn't change my opinion of Michelangelo or any of that, but it started to broaden my idea of art history, you know. And um, so, but um, the... My experience in college and my study of art history and my growing interest in Willem de Kooning and the abstract expressionists um, and my understanding of cubism, uh, standing in front of a painting when I was little, uh, I was about, I don't know, 16 or something, in front of a cubist painting and forcing myself to understand what was going on. And once I understood what was going on, I began to have a different idea about art, and I stopped wanting to imitate anything from the past, and I wanted to try to get on board with with uh, ideas that were that in art that were more, starting to be more exciting for me mm. and more authentic. You know, I found that representation was I felt like it was bankrupt, and I uh, I didn't want to engage it anymore. So it's actually a similar feeling that I began to feel about about my about uh, abstract expressionism, that it was bankrupt. And then I went back to representation. Or not went back. I never really learned enough about it. I had to teach myself from the beginning when I, when I started working on it. That's amazing. So I want to I go back to the topic of abstraction because there is, at least in my eyes, there's a lot of presence of an awareness of abstraction in your figurative work. So much so that it actually, uh, how to put it, this, I don't know if this, might, if this is news to you or not, but I come from the Israeli figurative tradition. And the Israeli figurative tradition, we, at least in, in, in the, big, the big schools, which aren't very big, uh, there's, there's less of an emphasis on anatomy and, and, and things like that and more of, a, of an emphasis on perception. And perception is abstract inherently. I mean, whatever it is that we're, that we're subjected to in terms of the visual field, it's just a collection of shapes and, and, and colors. And when I came to America, I've been here for over eight years, I am living with an absence of this, except for very few painters that really do demonstrate like they're also coming from, from that way of looking at things. And I, I suspect this is something that I'm feeling in your work and also in the work of the late Leonard Anderson. I don't know if maybe you, you had a chance to know him, but I wanted to, to ask, what's your, your, what's your relationship with abstraction still in your figurative practice? 
You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. It's absolutely there every day. Do, do, do you study with... Uh... With uh, Israel Hirschberg, I studied with two of his two of his students, uh, Aaron Gershuni and David Nippo. Yeah, I know Aaron. Uh, he's a lovely guy, and uh, Israel is a very, very dear friend of mine, like my mm. brother. You know, and um, I love his family. And I was I went to the uh, to uh, uh, the school in in Italy, and I was there with a visiting artist there. Uh, anyway, I, he but he and he is a perceptual painter. Uh, he looks at, he takes it away. My, my, one of my favorite artists is also um, one of my a guy I revere, who's also a dear friend of mine, Antonio Lopez Garcia. Of course. And he is a perceptual painter. He looks and he just makes the marks. Um, I am not a perceptual painter at all. I, I, I'm totally conceptual. And that's the bridge between abstraction and what I do. When I looked at the history of art, I, I, I realized that there may be five, you can count on one or two hands, the, the number of artists who were perceptual. In other words, that actually tried to paint what they saw in some way, tried to paint what they saw and engaged in that kind of dialogue. It's a very sophisticated and fascinating dialogue, but they're very few and far between. And, uh, But most of them are painting these machines, these conceptual machines, Michelangelo, Leonardo, uh, Balicelli, Delacroix, Anger even, you know? These guys are painting, Anger's painting things with, with, through the eyes of Raphael. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, they all have these sort of templates, these conceptual templates that represent the art that they love with all of their heart, you know? And it's through that template and with that template, they're able to, ha to have a dialogue with those artists, to actually interact with those artists in a way that satisfies them, that they're actually speaking to them. You're speaking on the same level in terms as they are. You know, mm. uh, it's not so as solipsistic as a perceptual uh, experience is, where these are my eyes, these are my eyes looking, my eyes are seeing this. Theirs is sort of like a, an ongoing uh, sort of uh, uh, display of, of, of the rationality, the reason behind painting and uh, the reasons behind the history of painting. It, it's like, kind of like there's an empirical school of philosophy and there's a rationalist school of philosophy. Empirical is like the British school, the rationalist or the European school. Perceptual artists, you know, they, they, they see it. And they want to paint it. They, they, I don't believe it. And from British painting, you know, Lucian Freud and uh, Auerbach and these people, they have to see the damn thing. They see it and they work from that. Francis Bacon pushes it a little further. But, you know, that's, that's the idea. It's sort of this British school of thought. But the European school of thought is much more based in a kind of rationality or, or a reason 
Uh, and that reason is something that is not necessarily based on what you see, but mm -hmm. what you've interpreted from things that you've observed. In other words, you, you observe them and then you, you create models of thought that are extensions of that, you know, of that uh, observation, you know? Mm. Uh, so it's, most of it is invisible. In empiricism, it's all visible, right? That's fascinating. So this this actually leads me to, okay, so I, I feel compelled to kind of, despite the fact that I totally understand what you're saying, I feel like I don't want to lose any of our listeners. So if they hear you saying, I don't paint what I see, but I'm more of a conceptual painter, and they are familiar with how conceptual art looks like in galleries, and they would look at your work and they say, but that looks like stuff that looks like people that doesn't look like conceptual art. So what do you mean by that? Okay, that's a good question. You know, um, it's basically the difference from what an artist like Delacroix, right? And an artist like uh, Fantin Latour, right? Fantin mm -hmm. Latour is, uh, it's, it's a matter of, it's a matter of, uh, of, of slant. Fantin Latour slants in the direction of perceptual realism, okay? He, he has the stuff in front of him, the flowers, and he paints them as they appear to his retina, mm -hmm. right? Right through his eyes. Delacroix, however, is constructing out of his head a, a kind of organization of visual field mm. that uses uses shards of perception so that it, it keeps one foot in, in the plausible and it and it doesn't become banal, you know. And, and yet, the entire thing is a concept that is that is not observed. Mm. Manet said, "Learn to paint from your head, uh, but always, uh, but always uh, consult nature so that you don't fall into banality." Uh, what, what else? I mean, Degas, Degas said, "Paint out of your head. Use all the tricks that you know of, and then add the accents of nature." Make it look as if you saw it, right? And that's and that's what I do. I make it look as if I saw it, but I never saw any of that stuff. I never stood. I never stood in front of something and painted it. I, I can't. I can't. I just have to get. It comes out of my head. <laughs> that's that's incredible. Uh, um. Wow. I'm like <laughs> trying try not to trip on my words because this is so interesting. So. <laughs> Essentially, what you're what you're uh, uh, what you're advocating for, what you you are saying that you're doing in your work, is something that is very rich in art history. You can see it. Uh, I assume you would say we can see it in the narrative works of David when he puts all these like ela elaborate situations together that really you couldn't recreate in a studio, even if you tried very very hard. So, as far as I'm concerned, working in the way that you're describing opens the path to very rich forms of, of narrative that if I, if I wanted to do like a multi-figure situation in my studio, it's like, forget about it. It's, it's not going to work. So essentially the fact that I am very focused on, on perceptual qualities limits my ability to utilize narrative in my work. But you, you clearly use that in your work. Nar narrative is a, is, is a very strong component of your pieces. What do you, what do you feel like is the role of, of narrative in your, in your body of work? Well, you know, I, I, I really, I, 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 know, I don't know if people really believe this about me, but 
I believe that the narrative of the work and my, my work begins with a, a, a vague perception of the technical procedures that are going to add up to something. In other words, I don't even know what the subject matter is, but I have senses of movement of paint and development of paint and texture of paint and opacity and transparency, the, the uh, gestural calligraphy of the thing. I have, all, I think in those terms, purely abstract terms, and they, uh, it, it bothers me or it occupies my mind for, until finally a subject emerges into it, mm. right? Um, so I would say that the way I describe it then is in terms of narrative being something that is not only the illustration of a story in a picture, um, but in fact, that there is a technical narrative and a dramatic narrative. Mm. In fact, I would say, let's say the technical narrative is the story of the evolution of the paint. And as painters, and as you know very well from all that work you have behind you, that they don't just sort of appear on the canvas. They arrive there through various processes. It could be, you know, the Juan de Perea, which is done, which is done very swiftly. You know, uh, probably not with a very solid gray underpainting, but the Ang, for example, very well might have that kind of underpainting in it, a grisaille of that nature. You know, uh, a lot of times the grisailles were like chromatic grisailles or strict white and black grisailles, you know, but they had, they were all different. They all approached the uh, development of the Ang, for, I mean, uh, Rubens, for example, preferred grounds that were streaks. In other words, he likes to begin his painting and his studies on, on grounds that where you can see the streak of the imprimatura on it. He actually, and, and, and because he liked that because already from the very beginning, the ground of the picture has a dimension to it, mm. right? And so he's, his, his eyes are responding to a dimension out and the illusion of a dimension the, the color of whiteness of the ground and the streak of this darkened stain over it, right? Slightly dark stain over it. And then he conjures his figures in three dimensions. Mm. One of the reasons that this is gets uh, is uh, brought to light is that when uh, when Van Eyck, uh, Van, uh, Van Dyke uh, was working with Rubens, he was also using that kind of idea, that ideology, technical ideology, that methodology, where you're you're conjuring the thing, the, the thing from the get-go in terms of floating figures through space that, that are transparent bodies that you can actually sort of imagine the back of them while you're looking at the front of them. And in some of the studies, you always see the back of them, and, you know? Um, when he moves, when Van Dyke moves to England, he stops using the street ground. He starts using solid grounds mm. because of the preference of a uh, certain kind of painting among the British. And his pictures, as great as they are, they no longer have that sort of uh, uh, the same character of transparency that he had in the earlier work with Rubens. I mean, they're great portraits. Was, I mean, Van Dyke is brilliant. Just he different, and it's because of that shift. So my point is that all of these artists have different uh, 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 stories behind the evolution of the paintings. Those stories are the technical narrative, mm. right? And as painters, we pay attention to that. 
Most people look at a picture and they just see the surface skin of it. When we look at a picture, of course, we look deep into it. How did it arrive at this point? Mm. Right? And why did it arrive through that storyline to this point? That's the technical narrative. So essentially, if, I, if I'm to understand correctly what you're outlining here is that we have two layers of narrative. We have the superficial layer of narrative, which is, here's what I'm seeing. This is a person sitting on a chair with some books behind them or whatever it is. And then we have the subterranean, uh, arguably the more important form of narrative, which is a narrative of the materiality, a narrative of what, are act- what, what visual effects, what, what sculptural effects are actually employed and in what sequence are they employed such that they create a story that is about the process, that is about the material. Uh, and then there, I think the most interesting part that happens is when there is some kind of tension between these two layers of narrative, which is something yeah. that I see, I see in your work very often. You would see a, how would you say, like a, a subject narrative that is uh, something that could sometimes fall into something sweet, maybe. There's a kid in the field or some, some scene like that that you would expect Uh, you know, to taste sweet, but then there's a different flavor that comes through the second subterranean layer of narrative that actually plays almost against uh, the, the narrative that you see on top. Is the, am, I, am I hitting on something? You're hitting it exactly. Um, let me put it this way. Um, you, the subject narrative, let's call, it, we call it, let's call it the dramatic narrative. Mm-hmm. There's the dramatic narrative, There's the technical narrative, which you correctly identify as probably the most important part of it. Otherwise, if we went into a room where we saw little Dutch masters, they're all little Dutch people in little Dutch rooms doing little Dutch things. But why does the Janstein look so different from the Vermeer? Mm. And why do we tend to really like pour over the Vermeer and not so much over the Janstein? Jenstein illustrates the subject. Even the Turok, as beautifully as it's painted, is still illustrating some kind of scene like that. The dramatic narrative is coming to the fore. The technical narrative is only in service of the, the, the dramatic narrative. And Vermeer, we don't really care what that letter is that she's receiving. That's secondary. Eventually, we might care enough to think about it. It's secondary. The first thing is why does the painting look like that at all? They're all using the camera obscura. He's not the only one. But why why does he choose to paint the lens, what the lens does? What what is it about the lens? Now, he's not a photorealist, so he's not like, uh, you know, someone uh, kind of in a jaded way kind of using the photograph because, hey, it's not the medium of today. You know, he's not that. He's considering the lens of the, of the oculus of the camera obscura in a way that's far more related to the Neoplatonic than to Renaissance ideas of Brunelleschi's demonstration and the, and the peephole and, you know, and other things, you know. Um, von Leeuwenhoek was his friend, and, you know, they probably discussed very much what the, you know, what the lens did to things. Um, but there's a third thing. And that's narrativity. Now, in my thinking, these three things are constantly in dynamic suspension in the painter's mind. 
Mm. And a shift in their their you know distance from each other and their relationship with each other all throughout the course of the picture, and um, narrativity. We talked about the dramatic narrative and the technical narrative. Narrativity is the uh, uh, the pres- what you presume the importance of what you're doing is going to be in the history of life. Mm. What you, how you feel your work is going to make its point in contemporary art. You know what I mean? So it, you can see if you want to make a point in contemporary art, how you might have to adjust the technical narrative to a certain extent and adjust the dramatic narrative to a certain extent until they start to work in the way that you want it to affect the world, mm. right? The point that you want it to make. Now, what if you wanted to make a point that was extremely uh, conservative? That you know, uh, said you know, some of these people who uh, tell the eight people they, they simply want to pretend that modernism was an aberration that didn't exist. That it was a complete mistake, just like liberal American politics it was a tremendous mistake. Bring back, make America great again. Go back to the 50s, all that political stuff that drove, drives the right wing in America. You know, you got these Italian people say, modernism was a mistake. Let's get back to the old masters. So they set their sort of adjustments on, you know, how can I make the point of the old master? But they never adjusted. So the technical narrative looks like a Giotto or looks like a Pontormo or looks like an El Greco. They said it so it looks like a bugaro. <laughs> so that they actually will reinforce the idea and antagonistically in the art world that it was late 19th century academic painting, French academic painting. That's where we all went wrong. We should have stuck with that and not gone as much. So my point is that all three of these knobs are adjusted for various reasons, and they're all interrelated. The subject you choose, the manner that you paint it, and the point that you want to make with it. Mm. That's, that's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And I'm going to ask a question that might sound weird right now, but this is something that it's been on my mind. So when I, when I look at your, at your body of work, the feeling that's created is that there's a coherent world that is in common to all these paintings. It's, like, it's almost like when they, um, when they come up with a new video game. I'm sorry for the comparison, but that's my mind. And then they, they show you like trailers. Here's that stage of the game. Here's that stage of the game. And here's that stage of the game. And all those stages look very different, but you, you feel that they're part of that same new universe, new universe that's constructed. So you're, you're building some kind of, of world through, through the way that you're adjusting these knobs. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could kind of share with us What is that world? It doesn't feel totally like our world. It, it, it almost has, I feel like it has something to say, but I, I can't quite put my finger on it. And I would, I would love to at least try to get your thoughts on that. In my uh, work, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with um, history and uh, theoretical ideas, very strange ideas at, regarding um, histories and And I have my own biases, you know, like uh, I, I, I feel, you know, that there's been an animosity between the writer and the artist, the written word and the visual image. And so it, when I come across something that will reinforce that, 
that that uh, conflict, um, I focus on it. You know, so it's my my reading of stuff is also generated by my following a particular type of interest. Now, in the readings of all of this stuff, it all goes inside of my head, and I never want to illustrate any of it. I mean, I, I want to stay away from illustration as far as possible, because I think it will kill the work um, if, if it does what I think illustration does best. Um, so the stuff stays in my head, and I can't paint it, but it keeps building and building and building to a kind of point of like incredible pressure. And at that point, I start to get sick of myself and sick of these voices and sick of all this theory and this art history. And suddenly there's an escape valve and it's a, there's a kind of effervescence that shoots off to relieve the pressure in the head. That effervescence is the painting. Mm. Okay. It's not the sum total of all of this. There's a change of state. It changes into a vapor, right? Mm. All this condensed matter. And in that change of state, it carries with it the something of the chemical character of what was inside of the pressure cooker, and yet it's transformed into a totally different thing. So the parts are then realigned in all sorts of strange ways, kind of like a dream. You know, where we take shards of information and we start to realign them in very odd ways, you know. Uh, So uh, that's why I think the work looks like it comes from the same universe, the same strange universe. But that's also why I think it doesn't actually identify that universe. Like, for example, someone like Adnerdrum does. You know, he identifies the universe that his work is coming from. That is some post-apocalyptic you know, human beings at the at the edge of uh, a new dawn or something like that. You know. Mm. Can I ask you to elaborate a little bit about the conflict that you're describing between the written word and the and the painted world? <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, you know, first of all, there, there are two very different um, uh, forms, right? There's a problem with translation. When a writer writes about art. There, there are certain also there are certain kind of parameters unless the person is a poet and in poetry there's enough of a slipperiness of the language and how language defamiliarizes itself with poetry that it's so much more akin to painting as far as I'm concerned um, in critical writing about art it, it can also have that poetic that beautiful poetic um, uh, impetus you know or or, uh, or drive um, but um, I, it, again, it's a different medium entirely. You know, um, I think that Roland Barth, the writer, uh, wrote, uh, or he wrote a great book called SZ, and it's a structuralist analysis of a short story by, uh, by uh, Balzac, uh, and uh, it's called Sarazan. And uh, he, he, he actually talks about not in that book, but he refers to criticism as um, as the bark of Theseus, the boat of Theseus. That Theseus, uh, and that was he, he refer, it refers to uh, an ancient Greek kind of paradox or believe believe something believed to be paradoxical uh, about identity. 
And the idea is that Roland, uh, that uh, Theseus goes into this, goes on this journey, and he does all these things. He kills the Minotaur, he visits the underworld, he does all these things. Uh, and all through that process, the boat starts to rot. So every part of the boat has to be, the parts of the boat have to be periodically replaced. So by the time he gets back to the port and, you know, at home, um, the, bark, the boat has been completely replaced with other parts. And the question is, is this still the bark of Theseus? Or is it a reconstruction of the bark of Theseus? And so literature, as it describes art, right? I, or not literature, but critical writing, actually is trying to come up with pieces that will resemble or uh, help to describe what they're seeing but the fact of the matter is the thing it itself it describes it in the best possible way it could ever be described. So you see, the painting describes this does what it does in the best possible way it could do it. It couldn't write it because you couldn't get to those ideas through writing, those feelings, those sensations. It's a totally different thing. And you can invent words that imitate those, that represent in a certain sense, but they can't embody it. The way, uh, and so that's that. That's an internal conflict. But in the Renaissance, there were you know people believed that writing was the fruit of reason. People, humanists, writers at the time, scholars, that uh, that um, writing was was a demonstration of reason, which is the unique attribute of man. That drawing was all sensation, all based on sensation, an attribute shared by the brute creatures. That the only part of the of, of the soul, essentially, that could make the flight back to God, and you know, back to the ineffable one is Plotinus. It's uh, based on the Neoplatonic. They um, uh, was the reasonable part of the soul. So there was an inferiority to the lower part, uh, sensation, which definitely informed reason through the imagination, and yet it remained the lower part of the soul. They thought that painters. Uh, Painter's activity was all about the lower part of the soul, the sensation, and that writers were all, and mathematicians, philosophers, they were about reason and logic, and that part of the soul is the elevated, truly human part of the soul. It is celestial, and the, the, uh, in a sense, it's mobile, and the lower part is terrestrial bound, it's changed to the earth. So there were arguments, of, in the 15th century, there was a creation of this thing called the uh, uh, in the 16th century, the Impresa, which was an image with a little motto underneath it, right? And uh, this was became like a parlor game in some sense. But people wrote about what was more important. It was like a paragon that they called it, a, like a competition. What is better, the image or the text? And almost to a man, they say the text for that very reason, that it's reason, but this is sensation. And it was Alberti in the Della Pittura that reinforced an idea I mean, the the the, uh, the claim that artists were actually using reason, that they weren't just sensate creatures. He says they used a, uh, a sensate wisdom or a, a practical reason, you know, a grasa minerva, he calls it in deep depitora. And uh, um, that's one of the first times that, that's, a, that's the beginning of the artist trying to attain status within the seven liberal arts. 
from that point on, they keep making uh, uh, applications like Leonardo does, Pacheco does, all these different I think Piero does. You know, because we are rational creatures. Look at my work. I'm dealing with mathematics and geometry all the time, invisible things that I'm actually manifesting as visible things. Why am I not? Why is not painting included in the several liberal arts? But the academics constantly knock them down saying they're not. They're not going to be part of the liberal arts. So really there was this animosity, and maybe born of Plato, who knows, but this animosity between the artist, uh, the poet, the artist and the poet who were banished from the Republic, and you know, other, even the guy who makes a chair is worthy of being in the Republic, but the artist and the poet, no. Yeah. So there's an animosity there that's been around for a long time. So if I if I were to okay let me let me try to sum it up and you you tell me if I got it right so essentially there's a there's a long standing debate on the role of painting within the intellectual tradition and whether or not it can rival other high forms of expression such as as writing and what I what I find to be fascinating is that not only are you making the case for painting in your work, you're expressing your faith in this medium of painting, you're also simultaneously engaged in a very serious way with a lot of art theory that could lead a lot of people to completely lose faith in painting. Like you're talking about Barth. I'm assuming you're, you're reading the French postmodernists. I'm assuming you, you read Derrida, you read Foucault. People who are engaged with this kind of intellectual material, uh, it's very easy to go down the path of thinking, okay, I better do performance art. I better do political art, things that are more relevant to our day and age. And yet you... That's if you, that's if you believe what they were saying was correct. Mm. That's what you read them and think, oh my God, these guys are making a really good point. Of course they're making a good point. But if, if you don't train a critical eye to what they're writing, right, think critically about them when you read them, then you simply go, oh, this is what's going on now. Already the post-structuralists are yesterday's news. You know, they're already past. Mm. Their, their contribution was, was fascinating and interesting and provocative, right? But it, it was provocative because it wanted you to respond to it, to say, wait a minute. You know, and it's in that discussion between the two things. That's where the most interesting thing is. To illustrate Derrida or Foucault or Baudrillard or, uh, uh, or, uh, or, or uh, you know. Lacan, uh, all those guys. Lacan and, and these people. It, to do that is not what our job is. That's called theoreticism. Elaine Bois, actually, who's one of the people who writes for October magazine with Rosalind Cross, he, he would say that that is theoreticism. That is not theory, right? And something that demonstrates a theory and it illustrates it is a theoreticism. But I think that painting itself is a theoretical vanguard. It approaches these issues in a painterly way with painterly intelligence, with the painterly tradition of expression, of, of grammar, painterly grammar, painterly syntax, painterly philosophy, all the things that are, can be expressed within painting and can actually, and I think in, their, in the audacity of painters, had a tremendous impact on these post-structuralists who kind of act as if they are uh, people, uh, uh, they are engaging in the animosity uh, that painters are constantly throwing into the system. You know, painters were always like the fly in the ointment, in a way. 
<laughs> you know, even back then, Leonardo Bruni, the great Italian humorist, the guy who actually came up with the program for the Gates of Paradise by Ghiberti, Bruni said, um, people who do one thing well think they can do all things well. That's why artists should never be included in the seven liberal arts. I mean, there was an animosity there, you know? Meanwhile, Bruno Leschi trains a goldsmith, builds the dome in Florence. Now, how does that happen? Right? Now, it, it, I even read something yesterday that Paolo Toscanelli accompanied him on his trip to one of his trips to Rome, and that Paolo Toscanelli, who actually is the guy who made the maps for, for Christopher Columbus, he was a physician, he was a polymath, brilliant mathematician. He taught Piero mathematics, and he taught Bruno Leschi the mathematics needed to do the dome. Uh, or he taught Brunelleschi about perspective, you know? Mm. There's, a, there's something missing from the whole argument. It's either the scientist has to tell the artist or the artist just popped out of nowhere and did it. Neither one of those things is, uh, is, rings true with me. There is a connective tissue between the whole thing. So if I if I may if I may drill down on it a little bit more, you're where where you're saying that is if you believe these postmodernists are right. And my question is maybe I'll bring the listeners in. So we have a whole tradition of of uh, of postmodernist theory that casts doubt on whether or not the practice of painting can actually. Um, be uh, be relevant in, in, in today's in today's uh, artistic discourse and whether or not it can actually touch on all the important social issues, political issues, things that the artist needs to be concerned with. And you're saying you're saying something like, well, I I'm not sure they're right about that. Where is your faith in painting coming from? And, and if they are wrong, what are they missing? Well, here's what I think is going on is that, And it's, it's a little bit of a long explanation, but since the beginning of the century, the last century, um, philosophy, uh, linguistics, and other disciplines uh, began to realize that the, 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 the most uh, uh, effective and accurate description of phenomena or attempt to describe phenomena was happening within science, right? That, and, it's, and science used to be part of philosophy. There was a branching off between the philosophers and the natural philosophers of, of whom Newton and people like that were. So science is sort of branching off of philosophy. In the Renaissance, Galileo and Kepler were both Neoplatonists, just like Toscanelli, Alberti, uh, Brunelleschi, listening to their conversations all the time, Nicholas of Cusa. So they were mathematics... Philosophy, uh, they were all joined together. They start to split off. By the get to the time you get to the 20th century, there's this, um, there's this um, attempt then to start to use some of the terms of science, some of the, uh, in order to describe the world. Like um, one of the people that's often cited, uh, noted is uh, Husserl, the philosopher who says, you know, uh, you need to bracket off phenomena, and so you have to start with, an, with a phenomenological reduction in order to make any claim about what's really happening with any certainty. It's like science bracketing off a certain phenomena and not trying to explain anything except the things that they can 
theorize about, right? Same thing with philosophy. Now, in linguistics, there was uh, there was always a tendency to look at linguistics in terms of they called it uh, uh, diachronically. You know how uh, a sentence is phrased, how the change of the phrase of sentence is, how the language is structured in terms of that kind of sense making. But so sure, you know, in order to locate within linguistics. You know the very the, the bracket off everything except the theorizable, right? He focuses on the relationship. He calls it synchronic. It's called synchronic. It's not as language functions over over a span of 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 sentence or of meaning, but how language functions in the moment. And so he says that you, I can identify a a, a, a theorizable. Uh, aspect of uh, language when you se- separate the signifier from the signified. Mm-hmm. The signifier is a fixed entity. It's a sign, right? The signified is a slippery entity. You know, a signifier can indicate a lot of different things within the signified. So if we try to engage in the slipperiness of the signified, we're not going to have much faith, uh, hope of creating a system of, of analysis that is testable, has, mm-hmm. has a scientific ver- verifiability. And so that that that, that uh, insistence upon the sign, right, mm-hmm. and how that whole way of thinking led to uh, the development of structuralism, you know, with Levi-Strauss and Jacobson, who uh, Levi-Strauss applying Caesarean linguistics to anthropology, to being able to unlock or overcome the problems with translation in a tribal society, the, the rationality of a tribal society, right? Uh, instead of seeing them as just, they're like us, except the way we were when we were cavemen, which is the way they were looking at it. You know, they even called them primitive societies. You know, anthropologists began to realize that they're not primitive at all, that they have a simply a different system of rationality, right? It's a different system. It's not a primitive version of our own system. It's a completely different system. So the problem of translation between the two systems of rationality becomes vast. And so people like Levi Strauss try to develop ways of trying to translate between the things. And it turns out, it turns out later that their ideas of uh, of uh, uh, the the actual mechanism that they used to translate it is in itself biased. Because it privileges certain things over other things that may not be privileged that way in the other rationality, right? The rationality of the other. So that's where deconstruction comes in. That's where Derrida comes into the thing. He says, you know, listen, you know, in every argument like this, you can probably locate at the beginning of the argument a binary opposition upon which the argument is, is predicated. And that binary opposition is the thing you look for and you ask yourself, is it true that form is more important than color? I mean, for centuries, we've been saying form is the thing and color just decorates it, right? What if that's absolutely a lie? How can you prove that? It's a lie. What about we put color on top of form and see what happens? That's exactly what Delacroix is, right? Mm. Manet does the same thing with perspective. He actually deconstructs perspective in some of his earlier work, not in the later work. And 
Delphine does that most certainly with color. Uh, with the, the privilege of the privilege of the form of a color, he inverts the binary opposition. Um, so in the structuralist sort of model, um, uh, and you know, the scientificated model that you know, even post-structuralism takes post-structuralism is kind of like uh, throwing the uh, throwing the baby out and saving the bathroom. You know, they don't throw the baby out with the bathroom. They save the bathroom, but get rid of the baby. So it's like the forms, you know, are, are of analysis are still there to a large extent. Uh, but the, uh, the 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 thing that haunts all of that, the very thing, gets thrown out the window. So anyway, the idea that certain signs are wrong, that they don't accurately represent the thing. Um, means that you can actually stick another sign in its place. You can change the sign, which creates a kind of simulacra, you know, like, like uh, Baudrillard speaks about, that you take a, 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 a relationship between a definition and a thing, and you gradually change the, the definition, uh, change the definition of the thing so that, and put another definition there. Now the sign means something else, right? Mm. But nobody really catches it, you know? It's what's happening in Republican politics in America. You know, uh, they keep like, doing the sneaky business of changing the, uh, the nature of the slab. My point is that the emphasis on just facts, the rise of a Marxist theory of materiality, right? Uh, you know, remember Marx, Marx uh, created, uh, created the idea of the dialectic, the material dialectic, as opposed to Hegelian dialectic. The Hegelian dialectic. Right, it tried to actually uh, imagine how history is evolving toward some kind of metaphysical happy utopia or whatever. Right, Marx says, I like the idea of the dialectic, but it has nothing to do with this sort of like voodoo kind of uh, metaphysics <laughs> of like that. Let's bring the material, the dialectic down to earth. Class struggle, a thesis and antithesis. You know, it's all about class struggle, and it will lead to. He thinks, as an economist and philosopher, the liberation of the proletariat, that people will, will be equal and in the end of it. And it's very strange, but the emphasis is on the material, the fact, not on some kind of metaphysical thing, right? Mm. And that is the that has had an influence on how artists view um, everything. They have to focus on the political in an officious way. They focus on the social. They don't focus on the sort of like the dreaminess of metaphysics. And yet, and yet, the sort of odd speculations of the mind in that way, right, actually engendered the birth of science. If you read Kepler, he speaks about the divine Cusa, Nicholas of Cusa, you know, who was talking about this in terms of God. Infinity, God, creation of the universe, it wasn't, he was a mathematician, but <clears throat> it wasn't based on observation. It was based on reason and speculation, right? Mm. I don't know if this makes sense to you. So in the 20th century, emphasis on the fact. Don't, don't waste your time with that stuff. You know, concentrate on the facts. Look, as artists, we have a job. And our job is to sort of like act in society in a productive way. You know, so don't spin your wheels painting those uh, 
those uh, uh, Morandi still lives, you know, what good do they have in the world? Uh, paint instead, you know, a picture of, uh, you know, uh, human suffering in a way that is polarizing, right? Not human suffering in you know, general, like joyous 3rd of May, but human suffering that pinpoints that there is a, there is a perpetrator and there is a victim, right? And all of that is so important for social justice and for so, for uh, activism, okay? Mm-hmm. But painting doesn't only have to deal with those things. It can and it should, right? But it doesn't only deal with those things. In fact, the things that it deals with that are other might have a greater hope of changing the sensibility of human beings so that they will themselves come to the conclusion that they might have to change their thinking or adapt their thinking. The other thing I would say is that painting has this opportunity. It can be the greatest empathic bridge between things. And the painter creates the empathic bridge, and then the painter is the toolkeeper of the empathic bridge. Some things you can cross easily over. Some things you have to, the painter will extract a large uh, cost for you to cross the bridge. And yet the point of it is empathic, that you that it's not about separation. It's not about distinction because of class. It's about like bringing dis, uh, a discussion, uh, uh, sympathy, compatibility, uh, uh, you know, between all human beings and all other human beings. Wow. What a beautiful conclusion. I, uh, so if <laughs> it's it's emotional so essentially uh if if i were to 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 package it just to to kind of give a nice summary of, of what i of what i picked up from what you're saying is that you're saying that these postmodernist philosophies are asserting that everything boils down to materialist things and to dichotomies of opposing forces and essentially you're claiming that painting is the perfect medium to go against these two claims we can actually instead of focusing on contradictions and 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 opposition of forces paintings can cause can create bridges and find a common humanity uh and also assert in the most material form it's not video art this is paint splattered on a surface you take the something that is the most material based object that you can possibly create and use that in Uh, in order to reject the idea that everything boils down to material because a painting proves that material can transcend material. That's, that's kind of what I picked up from, from what you're saying. That's beautifully put. That's beautifully put. Beautifully put, yes. I, I like that a lot. This is so, it, 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 it's very emotional. Uh, so I want to shift gears and actually ask, you are, your work is... so complex that you've asserted that you can't really work on it from observation so what are what's how do you come up with your colors right if i if i had to come up with these kinds of colors from my imagination i would be in trouble what what leads you how how, how do you know <laughs> what colors to pick well it, that, you know with all of us it's always a problem because you know we start out learning knowing how to draw pretty you know we we, we can draw And then suddenly we get that box of oil paints and we go, oh, shit, what am I going to do with these colors? How do I make these colors? How do I do with these colors? Well, I already know how to do with drawing. And we have a crisis. 
I mean, all of us have experienced that. I certainly have experienced it. What the hell do I do with these colors? So you wind up teaching yourself how to imitate certain kinds of color systems. Not, I put it that way. Just, you know, okay, it, light looks like this in the paintings that I like, so I'm going to imitate the light in my paintings. Color looks like this in the paintings that I like, so I'm going to imitate that in my paintings. You know, there's this and that and this and that. And then what happens, what happened to me was that I hit a brick wall, mm. an absolute brick wall, where I said, you know, I'm just emphasizing uh, these narratives that are done essentially tonally, right? I might as well not be using color at all because I'm not engaging in what color can imply, what it can do, right? So uh, I don't want to just keep painting narratives in a tonal manner, you know, like some, uh, and that was very, that was during a period where I was considered like this postmodern history painter, you know? And so I just didn't want to do that anymore. So I started, uh, I said, what is going on with color? You know, what, and one of the big questions I always had was why on God's green earth is Delacroix considered a great colorist or the father of color? I did not understand it because if you look at his pictures, you compare them to Ang, for example. Ang's colors are delightful and amazing. Delacroix's colors are troubled and murky and red, right? So why? And you know what? I, you know, I read a couple of times his journal. And then I found in uh, uh, an entry, I think it's May 5th, 1852. And in that entry, he says, the painting should be uh, begun in the mind of the artist as if on a gray day. Hmm. He says, on that gray day, an object sits and there's no direct light and no direct shadow. He says at that point that light and shadows are, oh no, he says, the object in this in this neutral zone is talking about a half light, not gray, a half light, a chromatic precise. The, the object will receive reflections on all sides of the color of anything that's near it, and you know absorb the general uh, you know overall color of everything. You know that the common color that is refer, that is achieved, which sometimes people refer to as gray, that is reflected on all sides. He says that if you take a light and shine it into this scene, you will have lights and shadows, but they are mere accidents. Now that's really a weird thing. Accidents mean because they always said that color was accidental. In other words, it was sort of you know not necessary. You know, mm. uh, I, that the essence was the form. That that, uh, But Delafa actually says that the form-making process of light and shadow, the lights and the shadow are the accidental things. And that the guts and the glory of the picture exists in the half-light. He says that that, and the half-light is the place where the color has the great, the form has the greatest propensity to reflect color on all sides. Mm. So I went, oh, I get this now. He absolutely took the authority of form, right? Mm -hmm. Illuminated form as being the sort of skeletal structure, the intellectual calling card of artists, as your friend Ang would say, the probity of art, the moral center of art, and he undermines it 
with, with the idea that the most important thing is not the illuminated form, but the half tone. So he takes the, you know, when you have the illuminated form like this, there's the light, there's the reflection, then there's the turning, then the shadow, right? He takes the turning and goes, and opens <laughs> it up. So the whole painting becomes the turning. And he goes, whoa, in the turning, reflection is all over the place. This is amazing. He may not, he had one foot in one camp, one foot in the other, but it wasn't until Monet and the Impressionists that you see the full demonstration of, of this idea, this op, the optics of this thing. Mm. And you see how priv they privilege color over light. You see how they paint shadows. They paint them chromatically. They don't paint them as a dark, right? Uh, sometimes the shadows in Pizarro, who I think is a one of the greatest men among artists, Pizarro, for me. Have you ever read his Letters to the Solution? No, I haven't. Uh, no, I haven't. He's a mensch of the first class, Pizarro. Uh, great. Anyway, he uh, uh, sometimes his shadows are virtually the same value as the light. Mm -hmm. And yet we always read them as shadows because they're achieved through a, a chromatic shift of temperature and a, a kind of binary opposition, too, that vibrates. But the uh, so what I realized that and at the end of this quote is so interesting because he says essentially he says this is the whole truth and meaning of color. Now that bifurcates the truth is the optical truth of color that we see in Monet, but the meaning of color is what we see in the symbolists. Mm. You know that you see in Van Gogh and Gauguin and Redon and you see it in uh, in those artists, right? That uh, So really, he's describing color in two ways. He's almost describing it in a Newtonian sense, and he's describing it in a, Goethe, a sense that Goethe would have it, the psychology of color, the meaning of color, as opposed to the optical versalimitude, the optical, of, uh, you know, a truth of color. Mm. Anyway, fascinating. So once I realized that, you know, I began to think, well, I can now understand color abstractly. And therefore, if I decide to put a figure in a red room, I realize what's going to be red are the shadows and the half-lights. Mm -hmm. And what's going to interrupt those the, that is the light coming into it. So if I have figures out at night and a light is shining on them, I ask myself, what temperature is the light? Okay, is that temperature the shadows now want to be? the opposite temperature of the light, but at the same time, they're highly reflective of everything around them. And what is the biggest thing around them might be the color of the night sky. Or if you're outside during the day, there's light shining on you and there's shadow. What is influencing that shadow more than anything? The color of the sky or the color of the very light bouncing off the house and shining back into the shadow side. Shadows, he said, are mirrors, right? The light then becomes sort of, you know, you have to deal with the tonality of it very beautifully, very important, right? But the shadows are the ones, are the places where you have a greater complexity of, of color happening, a reflected color happening. Right? Mm. So, uh, so knowing that, having that in my head, I can interpolate it into any scene that I want. And it, it functions perfectly. Wow. Uh, where to begin? First, I'm so happy to hear the way that you're describing the um, your approach to color because it sounds to me like something 
as if you're saying, okay, what kind of light do I have? What color do I have? What's the color of the room that uh, my figure or my object is situated in? Uh, what is the kind of atmospheric effects that are going to interfere with the colors that are going to happen? And then you almost calculate it such that all these colors have the influence on the object that you're centered on. Uh, and that's how you arrive at your colors. My, my, the reason why I have I'm so the influence happy to- in the shadows. The shadows. The, 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 the reason that I'm so happy to hear that is it kind of justifies ever so slightly my previous analogy with video games because these, these artists who will work on these, on these scenes also have to imagine all this kind of stuff because they're building a virtual world, a new world. And for that world, uh, for us to feel like we can actually inhabit that world, they have to take all those things into account. And I, I, I say that as, again, a form of very high praise because I'm a, I'm a big fan of video games. So this, this, this should, should only be taken as a compliment. Uh, no, I, I, I get it. I totally do. Believe me. I mean, uh, I have tremendous respect for the minds that, that, and the artists, artists who create those things. Total respect for But it's exactly that. I, like to, I want to create a virtual world. And the virtual world, uh, if because I, not a world that I, it's a world that I, I inhabit in my imagination and in my compressed understanding of history and theoretical ideas and my mm. desire to make something that, to create imaginative space for myself that is new, you know? Mm. Um, so, uh, so you have to do that. That's really, we're getting to the nuts and bolts. And you put it very well when you talk about video games. And these guys are actually imitating, uh, uh, coming up with a concept that will re- reproduce a verisimilitude mm. that we actually inhabit because it's, it has a familiarity to us, but it also defamiliarizes the familiar, right? Which is the most beautiful thing. And poetry does that too with words. It defamiliarizes the word, a word that we associate with cup. All of a sudden, it becomes something else. You know, it comes like the the uh, curve of an eye or something. You know, uh, so meaning slip slip through the signifiers, uh, and that, that that I love because it doesn't it it sort of loosens the 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 tyrannical hold on uh, things that the discursive has. Mm. You know, there's the figure on the discursive in art. The discursive is what's intelligible. Clearly, well, at least it's something we can discuss. We can talk about it. We can understand the elements that are here. But then there's this other that haunts it. And that's called the figure. And so we don't know what that thing is. And we really are hard-pressed to come up with a, a system of analysis of, of theorizability that is that could contain that thing. So we kind of let that go, and yet it haunts constantly the discursive, right? Mm. The thing that sort of weighs on my pictures, even if I try to make them look as if you can inhabit that world, is something that I'm not quite sure it is. It's totally psychologically engendered. Uh, God knows if it has to do with some... uh, you know, a piece of meat that I ate when I was a child that has ha- altered my thinking, you know? <laughs> and that, uh, so, uh, but that is, that hovers over the subject matter. And the best way I can describe that, trying to get to it, is through the technical narrative. The technical narrative is the, is the sort of ghost that haunts 
that haunts the, the dramatic narrative. Mm. Right? That's beautiful. And may I ask, when you're when you're building all those all those imaginative spaces, are you uh, relying on photography in any way? I, everything. Like, for example, if I paint a bunch of soldiers outside uh, climbing out of a foxhole, uh, what I would do is I, I, every day I would, like, walk out of my studio and walking back to the subway where I lived in New York and look at dirt, especially after it rained, soil. I would look at it. I would look at the shadow. I would look at the color of it. I would look at the light. I would try to freeze in my mind the, the properties of it that made it look like what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Committing them to memory. Uh, I, I have this insane memory. That's the, the other thing about me. I mean, I have things memorized. I memorized in third grade, and like uh, I, things that you know, one that Dr. Vivi showed is the drift of much of best. I've got these Canterbury Tales memorized, and you know Shakespeare. At one point, I had all of Macbeth memorized. So I, I have this insane memory that way, and uh, it also works, you know, in terms of visual memory especially because I'm using the kind of memory tool that breaks it down into the certain principles that Delacroix, uh, you know, I learned from Delacroix or I learned from Ang, you know, uh, and that helps me to look at things and to see it in terms of their thinking and realizing how, how expandable their thinking was. So it's not just painting it like Delphi or painting it like Aang. It's understanding the principles that give rise to a whole wealth of possibilities. Mm. You know, uh, uh, photographs too. I used to, if I do something, I, the first way I approach it first is I construct it all out of my head. I like, uh, uh, I'll make usually abstract drawings or trying to come up with you know, thrusts of information and, you know, gesture and things like that, value and how I'd like the surface to be activated somehow. And eventually the subject starts to come into that as I'm imagining the, the way it's going to be painted. Uh, and so I try to paint the subject out of my head and I do as best I can without anything, right? And I kind of get a sense of how that's going to work. And then I realize pretty soon that I, I might need more information. Uh, for something, then I find the information for that part of the picture. You know, I find bits of information. So, okay, uh, because I want it to be a world that, as you say, we can inhabit. I want it to have kind of verisimilitude. So I will use it more or less to the extent that I want it to look like I really saw it. You know, uh, sometimes it's just feeling the bones in my arm. Mm. Sometimes I'm doing like this, realizing how the arm curves like that, or looking at my own hand, or photographing my hand, or photographing something, uh, using a photograph that I find, but that, you know, not, you know, not, not so often. But it all has to be, you know, if I'm doing a painting like this painting I did called Theseus, which is like all these figures, you know, uh, you can't really get people to say, hold that pose, right? But I can construct the, the abstraction of the composition out of my head, and I can start to make figures out of my head. Now, if I want to change a figure after it's just not working, and I want to change it completely, I have to be able to do it out of my head. I don't look for a, a source and say, okay, I'll stick that figure in there. I paint it out of my head in the picture, right? So that it works with the composition and the way I want it. And then I find the source material if I need it. Wow. That's amazing. 
Um, I want to touch on something that it might it might be a little long winded, but it's uh it's it's essentially it goes back to what you were talking about the dichotomy between uh, the colorists as a result of of Delacroix's influence and 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 the tonalists and take it back a little bit to the way that I think about visual arts. Um, I a lot of the analogies that I make have to do with music because I play music, I, I studied music, and I see a very very strong connection between between the two uh, between the two fields. And for me, the analogy that you brought up from Delacroix, what would happen if you had a gray lit, you know, half half light situation, and then you shine a strong light on it, what, would, what you would get essentially for me is then you would get the punctuation, you would start to get the rhythm because you would see da, 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 all those shadows appear. And the distances between those shadows are they're rhythmic. They're holding everything together. The distances between those highlights, they're rhythmic. So for me, the tonality or the the, the, the disegno is the rhythm section, drum and bass. The colors on a gray day, that's the harmony. And I don't think it's coincidental that we talk about color harmonies. When you talk about color harmonies, we don't necessarily consider the drawing when we're thinking about it. So for me, it definitely could be a situation where we don't need a rhythm section at all and the painting works fantastically or the song works fantastically. And for example, I would take Bonnard or Vuillard in that kind of example. When you, when you, look, at, when you look at works by Bonnard, almost everything is the same value, but the color relationships are, are just striking. You got it. You got it. Exactly. Exactly it. If you look at the 19th, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah, because there's a dark conclusion at the end of this rant. So for me, you know, Bonnard, Voyard, Monet, those people who are who are committing themselves to a to a color harmony that is not punctuated by rhythm. It's like it's like this mass masterful symphony of like violins or or or, or stuff like that. But I don't think Delacroix actually does it. Delacroix still has the rhythm in his his work and and for me in, in a problematic way because he does use values you know heavy uses of values but they're a little sloppy and so much so that he recently had a big show at the met and i actually went into it you know knowing that delacroix is not one of my favorites but i was i was committed to come with, with an open mind saying maybe there's something that i'm missing i want to go in there and fall, and fall in love and i did i i, I did not i did not I, I so now you know with all the, I I, I want to be convinced what, to like him. I want to. Can you can you give the pitch for Delacroix? Like, how do I need to look at him next time that I come to one of his exhibitions? Uh, okay, uh, this is a, a big topic. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right describing uh, Vuillard, Bonnard, uh, the Impressionists, and it's exactly why Cezanne had trouble with them. Is mm. that they started they lost the tonal markers the architectonic aspects of the work that gave it its real rhythm. And you can see when when Cezanne comes on the scene again, all of a sudden rhythm starts to become really important. You start to hear the drums again, you know, and so the bass again, right? Uh, But you don't hear it in Voyard. You don't hear it in Bonnard. You don't hear it really in Monet at all. Mm -hmm. You hear it in Cezanne, and then you see it in the Cubists. The analytic Cubists, and they get rid of color completely. Now, so what is that? Um, if you take music in a different direction, if you talk about it rather in terms of classical music, which I'm sure you've studied, you know, and you think about uh, what, Mo- what Mozart, especially Haydn, sounded like during that period, 
And the music has a kind of, uh, it's held together with kind of clockwork rhythm. Mozart starts to slow, they're geniuses, geniuses, Haydn, amazing. Mozart starts to slip out of those clockwork rhythms. But the rhythm of the clockwork, you know, also the whole idea of sonata form and its argumentative sort of aspect, its discursive aspect, it's like a discussion going on. It's firmly footed within uh, the age of enlightenment and reason and the privilege of the mathematical, the, the predictable, the, the empirical, the, the scientific, you know, mm-hmm. that we can find the mathematics behind the entire world, which is what perspective is to begin with anyway. So there's that, it's heavily into that. And Beethoven starts out, and he is studying with Haydn, and he uh, you know, devotes some of his works, dedicates some of his works to Haydn. And for a while, he follows through in that kind of tradition until he starts to push out of it. Uh, and he it's before he goes deaf. He's going deaf by the Third Symphony. But there are things going on that are utterly antagonistic to that particular model. So um, when you look at Mozart and Haydn and you imagine an opera by Mozart, you feel as if you can sit here and look at the stage and you can observe in a cathartic way the activities, the, the trauma that's occurring with, you know, Don Giovanni and, and this sort of thing, you know, and the ghost of him going to hell again. But you experience it in a cathartic way at arm's length, at arm's length. Every now and then, with Mozart especially, that arm's length starts to collapse. So there's a spectatorial distance like this that is very objective. It sort of reinforces an objective view of things. Okay, When you get to Beethoven, you're starting to see a collapse of the objective. The eye, you see, the stage Mm -hmm. is here, the eye is here. In David and Haydn, there's a, there's a spectatorial distance, mm-hmm. okay? When you get to Beethoven and Delacroix, the eye starts to advance on the subject so that it becomes almost one with the subject, mm. right? It, there's a collapse of that spectatorial distance and the ultra-subjective takes the, takes, uh, the field, mm. right? And that subjective is romanticism in music and in painting, Right? Beethoven has one foot in the classical, he's a bridge between that and the romantic, but Beethoven is really in his own universe. He really is in his own, like Bach is really in his own universe, right? And uh, Mozart didn't live long enough, unfortunately. But but that universe that is totally solipsistic is a subjective world. It's a column that goes this way rather than this way. Right, it mm-hmm. sort of like builds on itself like that, rather than sort of is a spectatorial diorama of what you're what you're looking at. Um, in that Delacroix show, there is one little painting that's one of the most important paintings, I think, but it's very little, but it tells the whole story of Delacroix. It's called the uh, the uh, the Duke of Orleans and his mistress. And it tells, it's an illustration of an old French fable. And in this fable, there's this guy, the Duke of Orleans, and he's an asshole and a real, like, wildy rake. And he sleeps with all the wives of all the people in the court, 
the men in the court. And then he has the balls to actually go up to them afterwards and brag about how beautiful you know, the mistress is when he's actually speaking about the person's wife. He's an idiot, you know? So he gets caught one time because he starts talking to this one guy and he says, you know, uh, the most beautiful woman, my mistress is, the guy says, oh, you listen, you have to show me her. I have to see her. And he that's his wife. And the guy goes, uh, well, 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 she's kind of shy. So um, how about if I let you see her body and she lets you see her body, but she won't show you her face. And the guy goes, fine, that's fine, that's fine. So they set it up, the husband comes in and he sees his wife's body. And now the way Delacroix sets this up is that the canvas goes this way. And on one side, you've got the Duke of Orleans and the face of the mistress, the upper part of her. The whole, he's holding up a sheet so that you can't see her, that the guy coming in can't see her. On this side, it's fully illuminated, the body. And the guy's, the husband's coming in and he's going like this. Now, he, the idea is that he is, what a beautiful body. I've never seen anything as beautiful as he doesn't even realize he's looking at his wife's body. Right? Now, the painting is fully illuminated on the body side and it's in half light on the, the side behind the curtain. So the question is it's like a play within a play. Mm. You know, it's like, you just, where's the truth lie in this? Is the truth really where Ang would say it lies? In the light and the form and that? Or is it in the half-light, where Delacroix says? It sort of like produces the lie, it's the lie through which the truth is revealed, as Picasso says. You know, so in that opinion like that, the intellect of Delacroix and his absolute, like, commitment to, uh, to uh, locating within color, being a navigator within the turbulent seas of color so that he can actually chart how it works in a certain way, in both a, 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 a true way and in a kind of symbolic way, you know? And in order to really know Delacroix, you have to see the death of Sardinopolis, which was not in that show. You have to see the entrance of the Crusaders in the Constantinople, which wasn't in the show. The Bark of Dante, which wasn't in that show. Uh, these are his great paintings, yeah. you know? Uh, and it's these paintings that actually forms his reputation as an artist. Uh, the, the, the really lame portraits. Now, the portraits are kind of cool because he's, he's actually trying to paint them in the British style. So he's really thinking, he's thinking about art, how art could be, all the engravings for like the Hamlet, and, you know, he did self-portrait as Hamlet. Other interesting things about Delacroix are that, you know, um, Ang and Delacroix, right? You got these two guys. So Ang does a painting that's based on uh, a scene from Orlando Furioso by Ariosto. Okay. Now, Ariosto was a Renaissance poet, and that his poetry contains all the, the hallmarks of a Renaissance man's ideas. There's balance, there's order, there's reason, there's sense, you know, there's almost a numerical structure to the way the, the, the things go. And um, Galileo loved Ariosto because Galileo saw the world as numbers. Like the perspective, people of perspective saw the world as numbers, right? And okay, so there's that. Um, in the Mannerist period, 
Another poet arises who's also very important, in Tasso. He wrote Jerusalem Liberata. And uh, he changes poetry to the extent that it no longer, it bends. It doesn't have the same architectural, uh, you know, uh, harmony that Renaissance poetry has. He, he, the sound of the words has more importance than in Renaissance. Even in, the sound of the word will slip it into a different meaning. Also, his metaphors are are odd because they will uh, they will mix. You know, he'll say something like, "The shadow cast its breeze over," you know, or something like that. Like wind and shadow is like what, you know, but. You know, by doing that, he's expanding the imagination of the poetic language, right? Okay, so you can think of Ariosto as uh, Titian. In fact, that guy with the C is Ariosto, supposedly. And you can think of uh, Tasso as uh, Pontorma, right? Okay, Mannerist Renaissance. Now, Delacroix doesn't paint Ariosto, but he paints a picture of Tasso in prison. Mm. Okay, and paints Raphael and his mistress. Delacroix paints Michelangelo in his studio, brooding. <laughs> so you see that the lines are drawn, and one mannerism is almost proto-romanticism, and the Renaissance sort of is a proto-neoclassicism in a way. You see, mm. so in from that point of view, watching Delacroix act, and, and he paints himself as Hamlet, which is another thing, because Hamlet is a mannerist character, not a Renaissance character. You know, so mm. the, all the, these things are what makes make Delacroix fascinating. I see his mind at work, mm. and I stop even looking at know that he painted the Bark of Dante, and know that he painted the Death of Sardanapalus. And know that he painted these masterpieces that are in the, the uh, uh, you know, f- sometimes flawed masterpieces, sometimes not flawed masterpieces, sometimes mm-hmm. absolutely the best they can be. No one was doing the death of like they're painting a picture like the death of Sardinopolis at that time. If you go in that room, you're in a room in the Louvre, right? Mm-hmm. Look at that. You start looking at the paintings around you, and then all of a sudden there's a death of sun. No one in France <laughs> or anywhere else in the world is painting like that right now. It's doing this massive serpentine snake on a huge, it's like brilliant. It's like eyes in the back of his head looking at Rubens and looking at Titian, and you know, as opposed to looking at David and looking at uh, Poussin and looking at all that stuff. To me, it's brave and powerful. Mm. That's that's the that's like the best case that I've that I could have imagined for Delacroix, and specifically that painting that you brought up is is one that I remember. But I can I can confess that because you're you're talking about him looking at at Rubens, something that colored my experience in a negative way is really when you walk into that room, the first thing you see is a copy of Rubens that's done in such a what I consider to be pretty sloppy way and immediately i am i am of course I'm, i'm getting the wrong kind of bias but i really love how you're how you're framing it and it also reminds me of another musical analogy so there's a whole style of, of music called prog and and progressive progressive metal or or or, prog- or or progressive rock the whole idea there is really intellectual 
because the music changes time signatures, changes keys, utilizes uh, effects that aren't conventionally thought of as, you know, musical, like screaming and things like that. And when I initially started to listen to that music, and I think everybody goes through this experience, the first, the first question is like, what is this? I, I, I can't enjoy this. This is very, very, very strange. But once you manage to tap into that intellectual frequency and understand that what we're doing here is a little meta, you know, we're not only playing music, we're playing music that talks about the act of making music. And once you manage to put yourself on that frequency, then you can enjoy the music. So now this, this puts my mind at a different place. Now I know that if I'm to look at Delacroix, I don't need to look at it as painting per se, but rather a painting that is about what it means to make a painting. And that is, exactly. that is very interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very intellectual and nerdy. And once it gets intellectual and nerdy, I am uh, immediately on board. Vincent, I know I could I could I, I could keep I you here it. for <laughs> I, I, I could keep you here forever, but I'm I'm growing very conscious of your time. Thank you so much for 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 giving us so much of it. Maybe we want to close by letting people know where they can find out more about you. Well, um, you know, I have an Instagram. Uh, I I only put my paintings on Instagram pretty much, uh, nothing else. And uh, uh, I don't know what that is. Hey, Vincent. Uh, that's a Dario. I don't really know because I don't. All I do is I stick it on there, and then that's it. Like um, I have a Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I'm Instagram. Uh, you'll be able. You'll be able to find me that way. Okay, and I'll definitely put links to all those things in the show notes. And everybody should, if they're not following Vincent yet, should follow Vincent and be more familiar with his work because what you are doing is uh, your your project is a towering one, and and I'm in awe of everything that you do. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, we didn't even get to talk about Kanye West. And I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> and I really wanted to. But, but perhaps this, this, uh, this leads us, if you're willing, to, uh, to an intro to a, maybe a second episode. Okay, let's do it. Brilliant, Vincent. Thank it. you so much. Thank you, Ken. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again and see you next time.